Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, so he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, feed us with the heavenly food of your word. Come to us and open our ears that we would receive the the grace and the truth that we find here, Lord. Make our hearts fertile ground to be watered and for grace and faith 
to be strengthened and grow in us today through your word. Oh Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going through the book of 1 Samuel, um, looking at a part, uh, an important part of uh, the nation of Israel's history. Israel was, uh, at this time, coming out of the, the time of the judges, was ruled and organized in tribes, and um, judges were appointed over Israel to keep, uh, to keep their worship practices, to keep their laws. And uh, Israel's priesthood charged with this duty has, uh, because of their own corruption, because of their own spiritual decline, the nation of Israel has also declined. Um, And subsequently, Israel has not been a blessing to the nations. Um, They've been spiritually declining for some time. And this is a transitional point in history between this kind of tribal um, overseeing by the judges moving towards more of an organized um, monarchy, as we'll see later in the book of 1 Samuel with, with kingship. And during this time, there's this uh, building suspense, there's this looming question in the background for the nation of Israel. Oh Lord, when, when will you bring renewal? When will you make things right? How long, O oh Lord, will we suffer corruption? How long will our enemies conquer us? How long will there be injustice, O oh Lord? How long until you bring renewal? And there's probably a similar urgency and a similar question uh, for the American church today to ask, which is, when, when will the American church's ministry be renewed? How long, O oh Lord? You know, people are becoming less and less uh, inclined to attend church, um, particularly uh, people seem to be getting more spiritual, more religious, but people also are getting more secular. There's a a widening gap happening there. Um, People are less trusting of the institutional church, and there's quite a lot of criticism towards um, the institutional church, towards Christianity, uh, and a lot of skepticism. And if we're honest, a lot of that is is warranted. there's injustice happening, Um, and people are skeptical for it. Um, So what's the church doing? Well, it's trying to create new ministry models. It's trying to create, uh, to lean into renewal, Um, and often making one of two mistakes by, one, over-assimilating into the culture, trying to become a a highly attractional model of ministry that's indistinguishable from the culture and the world, Um, or one that's uh, highly uh, secluded, trying to recluse, seclude from the world, that's highly protective, uh, trying to be inward-focused. Everything else out here is irredeemable. We just need to focus on what's in here. Both are mistakes. Neither are sufficient. Neither really understand what renewal is or how it comes. Neither really see renewal. And we need to know what renewal is. Renewal is central to the Bible. Renewal is central to the Christian faith. So we need to know what it is, and we need to know how it works. I want to look at a couple of things this morning, um, how renewal starts. And then um, I'll briefly uh, mention the nature of renewal very briefly, um, and then I'll talk about the result of renewal. So three things. Um, first thing. This is what I want to focus on this morning. How renewal 
starts. Uh, verse, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now, most scholars will estimate that Samuel is, uh, as he's growing through First uh, Samuel, you know, we see before he's even conceived, we see when he's born, um, and we see him as a young boy in chapter 2. And at this point, he's, uh, he's growing, he's maturing, he's around 12 years old. Um, and he's, uh, he's serving in, in the tabernacle, the tent of meaning that uh, tent of meeting that God gave to Israel where his very presence would dwell. The center point of the nation of Israel literally um, is God's presence dwelling in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle. Um, and we're cued in on something interesting here. I actually don't know all the answers to this, so go look it up, find someone else. Um, Shiloh uh, used the word temple. Uh, the Hebrew word for temple. So we seem to get some indication there's something more structural there um, than the actual uh, tabernacle. Anyways, I'll let you work that out on your own. Um, Just an interesting thing. Um, And the word of God is infrequent. The vision, it says the vision of God is infrequent, which that's what that means. The word of God is is infrequent. Often when you go to the the minor prophets later in the Old Testament, um, it'll say uh, the vision given to to Amos written down. Um, It's the word of God. And the reason why that is, we see it in verse 2. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, so that he could not see lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. This tells us why. Why is the word, why why was God not speaking? Why was God's word often not spoken? There seems to be, and this is very Hebrew, um, there seems to be some use of language and use of imagery in the narrative here to, to correlate. Scholars will and commentators will, will emphasize this to varying degrees, um, but there seems to be some correlation between Eli's declining vision, the dimming of the lamp, um, to Israel's spiritual decline, the priesthood's spiritual decline and corruption is the cause of the nation's spiritual decline. The cause of the lampstand growing dim, God's presence and blessing to Israel and the world growing dim. You see that? There's some correlation there. What's happening here is what we're seeing is as goes the priesthood, so goes the nation. As goes the leader, so goes the follower. As goes the session, so goes the church. You have a correlation between Israel's leadership and their spiritual state they find themselves in. That's happening here. And there's a tension. There's a tension with that emphasis on declining spirituality and also the use of tradition in this text. Um, look Look at verse three. You have institutional religion still established. You have the the tabernacle. You have the tent of meeting. You have the institutions that God gave to the nation of Israel to put in place to evoke his blessing where God promised, I will will bless these, uh, these means. I will bless these institutions. You have, in some respect, institutional religion upheld. Eli, 
would have known the Torah. He would have known God's law. He would have known how to be a priest. Samuel, at this point, probably had most of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He probably knew most of it by heart, right? Which makes me feel guilty about how my kids are doing in catechism class, right? Um, Or even for myself. Um, Anyway, uh, you have institutional religion, but it does not guarantee the presence and blessing of God. But it's still there. You have a tension here with, with that, spirituality and tradition. So verse 3. Um, Samuel, Samuel's job would be to, to make sure that uh, if people came in, um, into the tent of meeting, and to keep, the, uh, to keep the lampstand, what most Jews today would know as a menorah, to keep it lit. As the oil would burn, it would get dimmer and dimmer, and his job is to keep it lit throughout the night, so it's not quite, the sun has not quite come up yet, right? Um, so that's Samuel's job, and he's, he's attending, he's attending to this, but there's also another reason. It would, it would be practiced in Israel for prophets and for priests to, if they've not yet received a word from the Lord, if they've not yet encountered the Lord, to go and to stay in the tent of meeting, to go and to stay in the tabernacle as a means to be near to God's presence, as a means for God to speak to them, to incite God to speak. And Eli, Samuel doesn't do that on his own, he's 12, right? Um, Eli's the one it doesn't tell us, but, but probably is the one who, who told him to go do that. Eli knows, uh, he sees the value of the institution. He sees the value of the tradition. He knows that God has promised um, to show up through those appointed means. So he says, Samuel, go sleep. Go sleep over there. That's what I'm saying probably, but that's probably what happened. Um, so Samuel's sleeping there um, because the Ark of the Covenant is where God's very presence would be in the nation of Israel. That's the Ark of the Covenant that um, God instructs Israel to build and to put the Ten Commandments in, and that's where his glory would be. That's where his very presence would be. That's where his weight would be in the, in, in the very encampment of Israel. So you have this tension here, um, building of tradition that can easily, that can easily become dead when it's not anticipated by, by God revealing himself through it. When it's, it can become dead when it's, not an, when it's not accompanied by the anticipation of hope coming uh, through these appointed means. Um, it can become dead. It can become dead, tradition can, when we use the tradition not to bless our neighbor, not to bless the world, not to be a light to the world, not to open the doors to the world, but to be inward-looking. To be inward-looking and protective. Tradition can become dead when it's about the accumulation of, of centralized power, is what the Old Testament is telling us. Think of the story of Babel. And in the midst of this tension of institutional religion existing, not equating to God's presence in the world, and yet anticipation and hope that God may use these appointed means to speak, he does. He comes in and he speaks in this moment, and he calls to Samuel in verse 4. It says, God called to Samuel, and he speaks to him three times. He calls him. He says, Samuel. And Samuel stands up, and he goes to Eli. He assumes it's him, and he says, you call. Here I am. You called for me. And Eli goes, it wasn't me. Go lay down. And finally, on the third time, Eli realizes 
what's going on? What's happening here? God must be speaking to the boy. God must have shown up. God must have, have done what he's, God must have spoken. God must be here. So Eli gives him a formula. He says, go lay down, and if it happens again, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant here. So Eli's the one who gives him the formula, and then something very interesting happening happens. The only time we see this in the Old Testament is God speaks, but he also, notice, God stands. It says, God came and he stood. What does that mean? What does it mean that God speaks and then he comes and he stands? Well, it means three things. First, it means that God reveals not only his, his message, but he reveals himself. It means that God reveals himself. In the Old Testament, we see a lot of visions through dreams and uh, oracles and prophecies, and, and we see uh, this happening a lot in the Old Testament. Um, but this seems to be more than a dream, more than a vision. There's something material about it. There's something more real about it. As God comes and he speaks and he's standing, as Samuel is in his very presence because God has revealed not just his message but himself. Now, let me say something important about this. Um, Exodus 33 tells us a little bit how we should think about this. Because if uh, Exodus 33, here's what happens. Moses, on Mount Sinai, um, is with God, God's prophet. Um, and Moses says to God, I want to see, I I see you, God. I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. And God says, no, you can't. And he goes, why? And God goes, because you'll die. Um, so what does God do? He says, well, if you see me, you'll die. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover it with my hand, and then I'm going to pass by you. And I'm going to pass by you. My back is turned to you. All my goodness, all my goodness will pass before you, and I'll lift up my hand, and you can see my goodness pass before you, and I will reveal to you my name. What does it mean? I don't know everything that that means. It's, a, it's an interesting text. But I think part of what it means is God reveals himself as he reveals his very character. He reveals what he's like. He reveals himself in his name. He reveals himself to Moses in a way that one won't kill him, but also reveals himself to Moses. He reveals his very person. You see that? That's what's happening here. It's God's very person, himself. He's being revealed to Samuel. The second thing is God comes near. There's an increasing suspense in this narrative. Um, There's kind of an indication through the language that um, God is calling and the anticipation is building. Is this the time that that it's going to be God? Um, Go lay down. And there's an increasing suspense. There's a proximity that's closing in in the text. There's a tension building, there's suspense into the, the moment of climax when it is God who, who is uh, standing before, when Samuel realizes um, it is God. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So God is the one who's drawing near and the narrative is cueing us in on that. He's getting closer and closer. Notice this happens at a point, an important point in Samuel's life when he did not yet know the Lord. He did not yet know the Lord, which means he knew about the Lord, right? He's serving in the tabernacle. He's serving uh, in the tent of meeting. He knows a lot about the Lord, but he doesn't know him personally. He doesn't know him intimately. 
There's not a relationship yet. There hasn't been a one-to-one correspondence yet. And this is the point where God comes and he draws near so that he can reveal himself, not ethereally, not in tradition, not in mere system, but as a person. But as a, relationally. And that's the third thing that this shows us. God reveals a, himself to us in a word. God reveals himself to us in a word. Why is that significant? Well, to know why it's significant, we need to look at the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What does that mean? What does it mean that God reveals himself in a word? Well, the word for word in John chapter 1 is logos. Logos is a Greek concept of, of, high, of a higher reason and cosmological order. Um, and John uses that word, and he doesn't talk about the logos um, in the same way the Greeks understood. He actually talks about the logos in this way. He cues us in on verse 14 of John chapter 1. This is what the word is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That dwelt among us, that word is literally tabernacle. He comes and he dwells. He reveals himself. He comes and God tabernacles amongst us. What's going on here? John 1 is cueing us in that when God reveals himself through his word, he reveals himself as a person. He reveals himself in a person. He comes and he tabernacles. He dwells amongst us as a person. Do you see that? That's why that's significant. Renewal. Renewal starts with what? The word of God. But what is the word of God? The word of God is a person. You see, renewal starts with a person. Renewal starts with the person of Jesus who came and drew near, who revealed himself to us, who came as a person. That's the start of renewal. And even, here's the key, when we had not yet known God, he came and showed himself to us. Romans 5 actually says, when we are his enemies, God revealed himself in the person of Jesus to his enemies. Renewal. Renewal. God coming is an act of grace. It's an act of grace that comes to us in a person. And when God draws near, this is, this is an important part for 1 Samuel, is when God draws near, whenever God draws near to his prophets, um, to anybody, the Bible shows us that they are never the same. They're never the same because the sheer act of him showing himself is grace. And grace radically changes you. Grace changes you. An encounter with God will change you. It means that you will never be the same. His very coming, drawing near, is grace. You see, what are we starting to see here? We all long for some type of renewal. We long for some kind of structural renewal. The church, the world, the culture. What is this showing us? It's showing us that structural renewal is always preceded by personal renewal. It means the, world, the church will never be different. The world will never be different. The, the culture will never be different unless God's people are different. Unless they're changed by grace. Structural renewal starts with the heart. It starts through a person in a person. You see this happening here? And so how does it change you? 
How does it change you? Grace changes you in a myriad of ways. Let me give you one. Grace makes you far more hopeful, far more hopeful than you ever could have imagined, right? Look at verse 3 again. You see, the lampstand is almost out. It's growing dim, but it's not out. It's not out. And John, John says that the Word, the Word is what came in a person. The Word made flesh. And the Word is the light. The person is the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. Here's what you need to see. This is an old Puritan uh, idea. All the darkness, all the darkness of the universe, all the darkness that it seems like you experience, which is real, in your life, in the culture, in the structure, in the church, in your own life, can never be extinguished by the flicker of even one candle. No matter how dark things seem. And friends, that's the moment. That's the moment when Jesus comes and he bursts into history. When God's word was not spoken. When there was no frequent vision of God anymore. When dead religion was winning the day. When Israel was encaptured and conquered by Roman paganism. At that moment, redemption comes into history. That moment... Light breaks into darkness. At that moment, a single flicker is never extinguished by all the darkness that, that, that exists in the, in the entire universe. Do you see that? And God comes, and he comes in a person to begin renewal. And he comes and he begins renewal in, in the most paradoxical way imaginable through a baby. Through a baby. He comes, and he comes in ways that we never expect, that we never saw coming, and he comes in ways, and he, he comes in humble ways, and he exalts the humble. He comes in way, and, and he brings renewal through this new birth. So as we long for renewal, as Israel longs for renewal, as we long for renewal, where do we look? We look to a person. We look to new birth in our own life. We look to the person, ultimately, of Jesus. Now, what's, what's the result? What's the result? Verse 19, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and none of his words, none of his words fell to the ground. Now, quickly, what does it mean? God's words do not fall to the ground. Deuteronomy 18 means he was, Samuel's established as a true prophet. He speaks, he's encountered God, he receives a message from God, and he gives that message of judgment to Eli. And that message of judgment will surely come true. His word will not fall to the ground because it has weight. When God speaks, it is so. And Eli's word, or, uh, Samuel's words will come to pass. That's the mark of a true prophet. You see, renewal is the result of God's word, and it means that his word will never fall to the ground. It means that his promises will never fall to the ground. It means that his justice, which is what the middle part of this text is about, will never fall to the ground. His promises, his justice, they will never fall. Why? How do you know that? Does God not speak? It seems like God doesn't speak. It seems like there's no frequent vision of God anymore. How do we know they won't fall to the ground? Let me tell you. His promises won't fall to the ground. His justice won't fall to the ground because there's one who did. There's one who fell. There's one who took justice on himself. There's one who threw his life, 
through his death that he fell, but he didn't stay there. He didn't stay fallen. He was raised in the cross. Jesus, the word of God, the per- God himself, a person comes and he falls so that we know his word will never fall. His promises are sure. And what does he do? He takes justice uh, on. He takes God's justice. He takes God's wrath. He absorbs it. The wrath that God has towards sin, Jesus takes it on himself. He absorbs it. He's struck with the wrath of, with the rod of God's justice. His words will never, his promise will never fall. His justice will never fall because there's one who did, and there's one who did for us. And he was raised. And a great word of curse was spoken over him. A great judgment was cast over him. And he absorbed it all. And he absorbed it all. This is what Christ does on the cross. This is what Christ does on the cross. So, long for renewal. There's a longing for, for grace. It's a longing for justice. Friends, we find both in the cross. We find both in the cross. And God using what is foolish, a 12-year-old boy to rebuke a priest. What is foolish, what is reversed, using the humble to bring renewal, to bring forth a new people, to start a new birth. Let me pray. Oh, Father, thank you that you give us not just a new way to live, but make us a new people. Lord, through your grace. Through the cross, we know your promises are sure because you conquered sin and death and the sign of your victory is your resurrection. And we know there is ultimate justice because you absorbed it. You took it on for us. You absorbed the, the wrath of God for us, removing it away from us when we trust and believe in you by taking it on yourself. You took the word of curse for us. You took the judgment for us. Oh Lord, make us new people. Give us infinite hope. No matter how small it may seem, how dark things may get. Give us hope, oh Lord. Bring new birth into our own lives that it would bleed out into the rest of the world. Lord, we ask that you do this through the power in the word of God, the person of Jesus Christ. It's in His mighty name that we pray. Amen.